Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah. We're back in the Old Testament together. If you're visiting with us, please use that pew Bible. We'll be covering an entire chapter today. And I'd love for you to be able to see that for yourself. So we are indeed about to embark on a journey through one of the oldest and most well-known stories in all the world. Not just the church, but the world. The story is 2,500 plus years old. And it is regularly read by all three of the major religions in the world. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. It is regularly challenged by all their opponents. Everyone's familiar with the book of Jonah, at least in some way, shape, or form. But just because it's old and popular doesn't mean that it's well understood. In fact, I would say that the opposite is true. It's probably the most misunderstood story in all of the scriptures. We get some vague notions about a running prophet and then a whale and a whale (laughs) or a big fish. Any children's book that you look at features a fish on every page, it seems. But that's only a small character of the story. You get to the end, so you think, that Jonah obeys and he goes to Nineveh and he preaches and everybody gets saved. But then nobody ever covers chapter 4, which is this pouting and complaining prophet about the work that God had just done. It's a complex book. But it's a powerful book. And it is my heart as a pastor, it is our heart as elders of this church to convey for you the significance of this story. We're not just rehearsing Sunday school lessons here. There is something powerful in its pages that is here for us today and in the weeks to come. We want you to obey and to understand the truth in this text. So to help you understand this story of significance, I want to begin by referencing a story of non-significance. In my home, over the last few years, we've been reading a book to our children entitled T-Rex Trying. T-Rex Trying. I don't know if you've ever seen it before. It's a pretty fascinating little read. Kids and I regularly laugh at its pages in which It describes this T-Rex, mighty and powerful king of the dinosaurs, trying to do some of the most basic tasks, but failing because of its tiny arms. For example, one of the pages reads, T-Rex trying to paint his house. And it has a picture of a house, a rendering, with only the middle part of the house painted because he can't reach anything else. There's another that reads, T-Rex trying to pull out a trundle bed. And as you could imagine, his massive head prevents his little arms from being able to get to the bottom bed. Similarly, he tries to make snow angels, but fails. He tries to apply sunscreen, but fails. He tries to adjust his office chair, but fails. Tries to do a cartwheel, and fails. (laughs) And the punchline of the book reads, Looks like the ancient beast isn't so tough after all. And there's another line in there that says, tiny arms, big heart. I don't know what the point of the book is. I think maybe the author is just, one, trying to make us laugh, or two, trying to help children not be so intimidated by this biggest and baddest of dinosaurs, which isn't in existence, so I don't even know why this would be a concern. But it's a good book nonetheless. And as I read it, and as I've read Jonah, I can't help but think that we are often tempted to perceive of God in a similar way. God is mighty, He is strong, He is ferocious, He can do whatever He wants to do, but He has some limitations. There are just certain things that this almighty, all-powerful God can't accomplish. His arms are too short. 
We sang the song when I was growing up in Sunday school. Our God is so great, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing our God cannot do. And we believed it. Except for those certain things that just seemed out of reach. That lost loved one. That sin that keeps coming up, not only week after week, but year after year after year. That strained relationship that seems beyond all hope of repairing. That broken family that just in no way could ever be reconciled. That that illness and its subsequent discontentment that just won't go away. God can do it all, but let's be practical. He's got unlimited hour, uh, power, but in some ways his arms are too short. It's dangerously easy to limit the power and the greatness and the glory of God from the potential, I mean, excuse me, from the actual to the potential. We say things like, I know God can do anything, but after all, doesn't God really help those who help themselves? I know God can do anything. He's all-powerful, but practically speaking, if it's to be, isn't it up to me? Maybe you never say any of those things, but I think all of us express this concern about the limitations of God any time that we feel anxiety, worry, concern, when we fail to rest in God's prevailing power, we think that, okay, yeah, he's in charge of it all, but I'm just not sure if he can handle this one. And so the blood pressure goes up, the worry starts, the complaining begins. In effect, we're saying, he may be strong, but his arms are just too short. It's not only expressed through our anxiety. Our limitation of the power of God is also expressed in our apathy. How could anyone ever defy a known command of the living God unless they thought that they could get away with it? How could anybody ever challenge something so clear as to repent and believe in Jesus like today? If they didn't also think in some way that they're going to be okay. That they are in some way, shape, or form beyond the reach of God. Everything's going to be alright. It's not just for the unsaved, my friends. Because I realize that it's mostly believers here today. But it's also for the believer. Who continues to persist in some expression of disobedience to the Heavenly Father, the same thing that they've been convicted about week after week after week, and yet they go on, just assuming that everything's going to be okay. They found a new normal. Defy an Almighty God? How can you do that? I guess His arms are too short. Maybe we've convinced ourselves that He can't reach us, that there will be no consequences for our rebellion or for our defiance against Him. See, the truth is that we all struggle from time to time with the practicality, not the philosophy, but the practicality of the sovereignty of God, His absolute power to do whatever He wants. And once we're aware of this tendency, we're ready to grasp the message of the book of Jonah. This is what the nation of Israel was perpetually struggling with. They knew God to be mighty. They knew that He could do whatever He wanted. They knew that He was in the heavens and He was able to do whatsoever He pleased, as we said in our Scripture reading this morning. And yet they were consistently acting as if He was limited in some way. I mean, how is it that they would continue to struggle with idolatry year after year after year? Crafting these idols for themselves. Is it because they think that God couldn't accomplish what those dumb, deaf, and mute idols could accomplish? Or even the idols in our own heart. Why do we create these things? Why do we worship certain things? Why do we fear and reverence certain things, objects, people, whatever, over God Himself? It, there's a limitation that we perceive. 
For Israel, it wasn't just idolatry, but it was also wrongful political alliances. I mean, if you read through the other prophets, you'll see over and over again, God excoriates them for finding refuge in Egypt or finding refuge, or making political alliances with these foreign powers instead of looking to him alone for help, they must have thought in some way that this God was limited, that he couldn't help them. And so they needed to supplement that in some way. And then the final way in which I see Israel in its history constantly defying God on account of their perceived limitations of him would be their missionary mandate. We don't think of it, we think that the church, the New Testament church, has been given the command to go to the nations. But do you not realize that when God created his covenant people in the Old Testament, the original command was, I will bless those who bless you. (laughs) They were to be a blessing to the nations, they were to be a light to the world. And even though it wasn't their job necessarily to go out and reach the nations as it is ours, they still were to be a demonstration to the nations, and people were to be regularly converted under their ministry, and yet they had lost sight of that. We don't ever really see them concerned about the Gentiles. We don't ever really see them concerned about the other nations outside of the fact that they don't want them around. There's a, there's a racism with the Jewish people that exists. They, they don't really care about the others around them as long as their ethnic line is pure and preserved and protected. God's arms must be short. Who, who cares? Okay, we're, Even though he created us for this, we're not going to live for this. We've got a better way to do things. And so, the story of Jonah is addressed to a people like that. We have this nation of Israel, and they are embodied in the actions of this prophet Jonah. For some of you who have grown up in church, you may know that Jonah is one of what's called the 12 minor prophets. I want to explain this. It's not minor because it's not important. It's minor because compared to something like Ezekiel or Jeremiah, it's small. (laughs) But what makes Jonah so interesting outside of how short it is, is how it's expressed. There's 12 of these minor prophets altogether. And the focus of all the other prophetic books in the Old Testament is the lips of the prophets, what, what it is that these men actually say. But here in Jonah, it's the only one that focuses on the life of the prophet. We only have two recorded oracles of Jonah and all of the scriptures. One here in Jonah as he calls out to the Ninevites in chapter 2, I mean 3. And then another in 2 Kings chapter 14. What he says isn't as important as what he does. And as the nation of Israel would read this book, they would be struck by the defiance of this man, but ultimately the dominance of its God, and then finally the gracious deliverance that he will provide even to those who straight up defy him. When the Old Testament Jew reads the book of Jonah, he's just not looking for a creative story. He sees himself, she sees herself, her own disobedience, her own defiance, and in that he learns something powerful about God. That is how we read Jonah. It is not just a moralistic book to make us better people. It is a book of revelation about our great God that we just sang about a few moments ago. And even though Jonah may be in the title, the point is not Jonah. It's about Jonah's God. And what he's doing here is he will, the author will showcase Yahweh's scandalous compassion for the undeserving so as to motivate God's rebellious, mercy-needing people to obedience. To remember that they are to be a light to the nations. But if we're going to understand God's radical grace, as evidenced in this book, we first and foremost must understand His sovereign dominance over the defiant. And that's what chapter 1 is all about. As we get into the reading, I want you to note that in chapter 1 we've got two scenes, one act. The first scene comes in verses 1 through 3. The second comes from verses 4 to 16, and I'll let you figure out the best way to label those. I think they'll become really clear. Let's read verses 1 through 3 together. I'll read. You can read along silently. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. 
But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. When you read these opening lines of the book of Jonah, what comes to mind? The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now these are specific words. It's a well-versed formula that we see over and over again in the Old Testament. If you're an Old Testament Jew reading this, you know exactly what's going on as soon as you hear it. It's a cultural indicator of where this story is headed. Just like we would hear certain things in our own American context and know immediately where something's headed. If you were to hear the term just out of the blue, by the power invested in me, I now pronounce you husband and... Well, what what are we talking about? Wedding. Or, even a little more dour, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. As soon as you hear those words you have the right to, (laughs) you immediately know what the context is. For the Old Testament reader, hearing these opening lines, as soon as he hears, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, he knows exactly how this thing is going to play out. Because every other time we see those words in the Old Testament, it is indicating that, all right, we're dealing with an official prophetic representative of Yahweh, and those guys do what God says. I mean, please keep in mind that the prophet, when we talk about a prophet, it's not just somebody who can forecast the future, even though that would sometimes happen. God would enable that. This was like a divine press agent for Yahweh. This was somebody who spoke on his behalf. Like he was the person, like if he said it, God said it. And typically the prophet's message was directed to the people of Israel as a whole or her king, whoever it happened to be at the time. Here things are a little different. Actually, they're not a little different, they're a lot different because there's never been another place in the Old Testament where one of the prophets of God's people was sent to a foreign nation. And so despite the strangeness of that, There has been no precedent whatsoever for what is about to happen. Back to what we think of stories. When you hear, once upon a time, you expect to hear at the end, and they lived happily ever after. If you hear in the Bible, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, you expect to hear, and he obeyed. (laughs) But what do we hear? Verse 3, excuse me, yeah, verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. It's funny, that's such a hard word to say, Tarshish. And yet, he repeats it three times here, almost like to make a point. Where did he say go? To Nineveh. But Jonah goes to Tarshish. 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 (laughs) He's really making a point. This thing is not going the way that they thought it would. Yes, God wanted them to be warned of their sin. It had come to his special attention. He wanted in his sovereign power and capacity to show love to a people who didn't deserve it. Jonah doesn't seem to like the idea. And so he goes to Nineveh. It's interesting. We don't have to like look in the maps in the back of your Bible. I can give you a pretty easy visual of what anybody reading this would have thought. Let's say that, and I'm going to turn my back to you for a moment so that we don't get mixed up. Let's use an imaginary map for a second, and let's pretend that I'm standing in Israel, okay? Well, all you need to know to figure out what's going on here geographically is that Nineveh was to the, yes, to the east, northeast. Tarshish is about as far west as you could possibly go. This isn't just you know, like he went a different direction. He went the opposite direction. The total opposite direction. And then even Tarshish itself was an anomaly in that world. It would be like our English equivalent of Timbuktu. You ever hear anybody say that? They live out in Timbuktu. That's no man's land. That's way out there. That's actually what he's saying here. He's like, 
He went not only like somewhere a little different, he went as far, he was trying to go as far away as possible from the Lord. Notice how he repeats twice, away from the presence of the Lord, away from the presence of the Lord. The author doesn't want us to miss this. But what does he have in mind? I mean, did Jonah really think that he could run away from God? God's everywhere. What does he have in mind? Well, in the Old Testament, especially when you read the stories of Elijah, that phrase, the presence of Yahweh, was something that was uniquely attributed to God's prophets. When they were speaking on his behalf, they were considered to be in the presence of God. Another expression of this is the temple. Even though God is everywhere, his presence was uniquely manifested in the Old Testament temple. Here, for Jonah, practically speaking, to go away from the presence of God is actually to leave his ministry as a prophet. This is just a simple way of saying, I quit. I'm done. But there's something else significant about that, significant about that phrase, and that is, it is away from the presence of the Lord. This isn't just disobedience. This isn't just defiance. It is something personal. He is not just leaving a job assignment, but he is leaving Yahweh himself. He is done with this. He doesn't want anything to do. His sin is a sin against God Himself. And what's so interesting about it is that He straight up defies His ruler. Look at verse 1 again, or excuse me, verse 2. See that in your text, Arise, go to Nineveh. There's two commands there, back to back, denoting the urgency of this thing. It basically means, get up and go. Go do it right now. But notice what happens in verse 3. But Jonah rose. It's the same Hebrew word there, got up. And instead of getting up, he's urgent. He's got the urgency thing down, but he doesn't have the obedience thing down. He goes the opposite direction, and he is defying God. And the question that's coming to our minds as readers is, why? Why in the world would he just straight up disobey God like this? Don't speculate why yet. The author hasn't told us why yet. If you really want to know why, you can read ahead to Jonah chapter 4. But we're not in Jonah chapter 4. God wants to keep our focus on just this defiant, like the fact that he just straight up disobeys. We don't need to try to sympathize with Jonah. We need to try to recognize that he has rebelled against God's sovereign rule. And so if you're taking notes... You could summarize this first scene, verses 1 through 3, as defiance. Defiance. What's the big deal about this? What's God trying to communicate? Well, what I love about the Old Testament narratives is they have a way of getting straight to our heart. Stories do that, don't they? They target the heart. The effect on the original hearers of this account and on us is nothing short of shock, amazement, wonder. How in the world? Could this happen? It's ugly. It's unattractive. It's distasteful. I don't think any of us have been spared from the experience in the grocery store, as awkward as it is, of standing in line behind a well-meaning mother with a little kid in the shopping cart. And you know how marketing works. There's the candy and the gum and everything on eye level with the kid within their grasp. And the kid wants the candy. The mom has just made a New Year's resolution to not make impulse buys. (laughs) And there's there's a, I mean, this kid just shows them up like right there in the store. And you're just watching the whole thing unfold. You know where it's going. The kid has the candy in his hand. Mom says, put it back. And the kid looks her in the eyes with all the gusto that he can muster. And says, no. (laughs) The mom removes the candy, puts it back anyway, and then comes the conniption. The the convulsion of rage of a child stuck in a seat (laughs) and whose will has been constrained in some way. And everybody's just kind of like trying to stand like this. You want to be somewhere else for that very moment because you're like, oh, that's horrible. Man, I know how this person feels. My kid did this to me. (laughs) I'm the parent. They're the kid. They're supposed to do what they're supposed to. And all of us know what it's like to be that kid. 
who says to the defiant, no, and then thinks, I shouldn't have done that. (laughs) It's ugly, it's heinous, it's horrible. That's what this account is for us. We read it and we know exactly how this thing should play out. This is God. Who are you? I mean, like, He's the authority. You just do what He says. And we also can sympathize with Jonah's angle as well. When we just straight up say no and feel the pain of regret for that defiance, it resonates with us. And we're asking the question how dare Jonah rebel against God? knowing that we ourselves have done the same thing in the past. The natural question here is, so what will God do? I'm always interested in that in the grocery store, by the way. What will the parrot do? Because you kind of have your hands tied. <laughs> I've got some options of what they could do afterward, but in that moment, <laughs> what do you do? What will God do here? What will the all-powerful, mighty God do in this circumstance? Is he just going to kill him then and there? Or does he have a different plan? It brings us to our second scene. Look at verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Now, when I read through this text, by the way, it's like a chess match. I'm not much of a chess player, but chess seems to be more dramatic. I would say checkers, but that just seems too vanilla. It is like a chess. There's some complexities here. If you look at verses 1 and 2, God makes his initial move. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. He sent a word to Jonah. Verse 3 in the Hebrew is emphatic, but Jonah. Typically in Hebrew word order, things go from verb, subject, to object. Here, but Jonah subjects first. Emphasizing, all right, Jonah's making his move. Now, Jonah, in response, does this. Same thing happens in verse 4. No verse, subject, object. It's subject first. But Yahweh, now, okay, here's the counter move. So God moves, Jonah moves. Now God moves. And here's God's move. Here's his counter move. He hurls, a vivid word, a, a wind upon the sea to cause a storm. By the way, this word hurled is the same one that's used in 1 Samuel eighteen eleven. You may be familiar with that. When Saul throws or hurls his spear at David, and it literally says in the text, to pin him against the wall. When we're talking about throwing something, this isn't just indiscriminate, I'm angry, this is targeted. He is hurling a wind upon the sea because Jonah is in his sights at that moment. So counter move God. It's from him. This is no chance storm. This is why we sing, by the way, in one of our opening songs, there's not a plant or flower below, but makes thy glories known. And clouds arise and tempests blow by order from thy throne. Even these dark things, even these terrible storms, it's directly from Yahweh. That God doesn't, I mean, the, the text doesn't try to hide that in any way. It's just being straight up about it. God was using nature to try to crush this ship. It says it was about to break. It was by order from his throne. This was the Lord's doing. And now the question is, how will Jonah respond? All right, so it's it's Jonah's move now. God sends the storm, and now it's Jonah's turn. And you think you're going to hear more about Jonah, but now we've got some new characters introduced to the story. Sailors. They're significant. I don't mean to sound like this is some type of junior level uh, uh, literature class, but there is some literature here you need to be aware of. What's going to happen with these sailors is they are going to become the literary foil for Jonah. A foil. We don't use that word much, but I'll give you some examples of a foil. I'll define it and then give you some examples. A foil is a character or characters in a story who contrast with the main character to highlight the qualities of the main character. Now, the examples will probably be more helpful. Uh, If you've ever read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, The monster, the creature, is a foil for Dr. Frankenstein. I want you to see, to highlight the main character's qualities. 
Uh, I've never read it. I watched the movie. But I'm sure some woman in here has read Pride and Prejudice. All right, if you've read that, the studious Mary is a foil for the lively Lydia. Two different characters, but we're trying to highlight the features of one. You ladies are just smiling. You just love that. I see it. I'm so glad that I've brought that reference up. All right, so for everybody under the age of 30, I've got a book for you. Harry Potter. Harry is the main character. Draco Malfoy is your foil. The way that he responds is going to highlight the character of Harry. The point that I'm making in this is that these sailors aren't just extraneous characters. If you really want to understand what's going on in this text, you've got to see how the sailors respond to Yahweh's power versus how Jonah responds to Yahweh's power. Okay? Now, let's note this here in verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. Now clearly, ladies and gentlemen, this is no run-of-the-mill garden variety storm. These men are seamen. They're, They're used to this. And yet it says that they're afraid. They're so scared that they get religious. And they're so scared that they're willing to abandon their livelihood. I mean, think about it. They get paid to carry stuff from point A to point B. You throw stuff over on the way from point A to point B. You have no money when you get there. They're willing to forego their livelihood to spare their lives. This is no small storm by any stretch. But what's so fascinating is that they seem to be willing to do whatever it takes to satisfy this deity that they think is causing this storm. But in the Hebrew, it's so clear. You see this again, another contrast. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. In the original language here, it's like a split screen, simultaneous camera shot of responses. He wants you to see these things at the same time. I remember I used to read this as a kid and I would think, what in the world? Like Everybody's throwing junk off the ship and Jonah just decides to like go take a nap. No, it's not that. Jonah had already decided to take a nap at the same time as the storm came up and these things were already happening. I like the simultaneous shot experience I just, I mean, we're just a little past March Madness. And you know how they like to do that when some team makes the winning shot, like at the last second. They'll show you two camera angles of the fans. Like one was on the winning team and the other was on the losing team. And you could see the contrast of disappointment between the two. Imagine on the left side of the screen, you've got these sailors and they're doing everything they can to survive. They're, they're trying to use whatever religious means necessary to stay afloat. And then on the right side of the screen, you've got Jonah, who has just abandoned himself to his fate, who understands that there's nothing else that he can do. He doesn't pray to his God. He doesn't even lift a finger to try to help them survive. Jonah has not only resigned from the service of the Lord, but he has resigned from life itself. He has nothing more that he wants to do with this. But I want you to notice something. Verse 6. The captain came and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Now I want you to see, you got God. He's using this storm, right, to get Jonah's attention. And he not only uses the storm, but he uses pagans to get Jonah's attention. He will not allow Jonah to ignore what he is doing. And so now he uses these unregenerate men, to use a New Testament term, to come and confront Jonah in this and to force him to consider his God. And you know what it's like to be roused out of sleep. The first sentence you never hear, that's just the one that wakes you up. He says, what do you mean, sleeper? Get up! But then notice what he says right after that. Arise, call out to your God. Two of the three main verbs in that opening command from God. Arise, call out against Nineveh. Jonah's thinking he's having a bad dream. He's hearing the exact same words that he was trying to run from, in this case, the lips of a pagan, and not to cry out to Nineveh, but in this case, to cry out to his own God. The captain's insistent and his desperation are real. He's deduced 
that only Jonah's God, notice the small g in your translation there, is the one that's not represented. That's why I keep calling them pagans. These aren't Yahweh-fearing seamen. These are pagans. They're calling out to the gods, plural, God, little g. You've got to be careful when you're reading your Bible. They're not Christians. And so they tell Jonah to call out to his God. They don't know the true and living God. And so they say, all right, let's give yours a shot. But they do know something, that God, a God somewhere, must be in charge of this storm. But here's the fascinating thing about these men. They're pagans, right? Jonah's the prophet. They're the pagans. And they say in this, perhaps we may not perish if you call out to your God. They don't presume upon this God's mercy, whoever he may be. They seem to have a better understanding of God's sovereign prerogative to save whomever he will than Jonah does. Do you see the foil? You see the contrast? The pagans acknowledge the dominance of God. And the other sailors are now the ones who expose Jonah's defiance. As opposed to it being the other way around. Look at verses 7 and 8. These questions will help draw it out. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots. And the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Now notice this. Jonah's just trying to stay quiet. He doesn't want to do anything. He's given up on God. And yet they are going to force him to acknowledge his God. And they do it with a barrage of questions. That's kicked off by a cultural practice. You see that term casting lots, by the way? Some of you know what this is. Some of you don't. Let me explain it. It was just a culturally acceptable way of discerning the will of a deity. The Hebrews used it, and the pagans used it. It'd kind of be like our equivalent of tossing a dice or drawing straws. But for the Hebrew and the pagan alike, they really believed that when this was happening, it was from the hand of God or the gods. We even see this reflected in the Old Testament scriptures. Back in Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. God is in control of not only the storm and the sailors, but even the casting of the dice to reveal and unearth Jonah's defiance. And so now that he's been labeled, they start asking him all the hard questions that are going to draw him out. Whose account does this evil come upon us? They're not, they already know it's Jonah by saying whose account. They're asking what God did this. What is your occupation? They don't want to know if he works at Burger King or not. They're basically asking in the Hebrew, what do you do? Like, why are you on this ship right now? What are you up to? Where are you from? What country? What people? They're asking this because they want to know, okay, who is this deity? How do we satisfy him so that we can live? And without even intending it, the sailors are being led by God to lead Jonah to confess his sin and Yahweh's sovereignty. God is going to make that happen. Do, do not miss the irony here. The prophet was supposed to be the one who leads rebellious pagans to confess their sin and recognize the sovereignty of God, right? And here, in a total reversal, the pagans lead the rebellious prophet to confess his sin and recognize the sovereignty of God. He will not be stopped. Verse 9, notice what Jonah has to finally say. These are the first words that come out of his mouth in the book. And the way that it's structured in the chapter convey this to be the most important words of the text. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Do you see how Jonah's forced to recognize the sovereignty of God? I mean, there's a major change here. They've been using the word God and gods, and now here Jonah uses the special covenant name of God. Anytime you look in your Bible, by the way, and you see the term God or Lord in all caps, it is conveying God's special name. It's not just a generic name for God. It is His special covenant name that He revealed to Moses and His people Back in Exodus. And so Jonah reveals who this special God is. And then even confesses that he's the God of heaven. That we sang about this morning. 
Even we saw it again in our psalm. Our God is in the heavens. He does as He pleases. By saying He is in the heavens, He's saying that He's the highest one. He's not just some localized deity. And then by saying He created the land and the sea, it's a merism. It's two contrasting look pieces or objects to show that He did everything in between. It's like saying, from A to Z, or from the highest to the lowest. The land and the sea, everything that you can imagine, He made it, and as such, He rules it. And then Jonah confesses his sin. When they start asking him, what are you doing on the ship? It becomes clear in verse 10 that he finally confesses that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. He's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. The Lord will not allow his sin to remain hidden. And when those men hear that, the Hebrew text literally says, and they feared a great fear. (laughs) They were just scared of the storm. Now they are absolutely terrified. Because the man on board has defied the God of all gods, the one who created it all. And I love the question. I ask this to people all the time. What did you do? (laughs) What have you done? This is not a question. This is a rhetorical statement. Like, you idiot. (laughs) This is Yahweh. You, you, You defied the God who made it all? So they say to him in verse 11, What shall we do to you? That the sea may quiet down for us. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up, hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Jonah knows what he deserves for his rebellion. There's no secret to him. After all, was it not his job to tell the rebellious Ninevites about the consequences of their disobedience? He knows that the penalty of sin is death. He knows that his sin is impacting the lives of others. And I would make this note for you, careful reader. There is no hint of remorse in Jonah whatsoever. He doesn't pray here and ask for God to forgive him. He doesn't confess that, Lord, if you'll just turn this ship around, I'll go serve you. He just says, kill me. It doesn't get any more defiant than that. Kill me. But the men won't do it. Verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it has pleased you. The sailors initially try to resist Yahweh's wrath against Jonah, hoping that if they can get him back to land, everything's going to be all right. I want you to, to get this because these guys are pretty thoughtful. Jonah's supposed to be the one that's like preaching to the pagans, and here they are, they're caring for this man's life. And for them, it's logical. All right. If this guy made Yahweh angry by not going to Nineveh, maybe if we just turn this thing around and get him back toward Nineveh, everything's going to be all right. Furthermore, he said, kill me. And they care more for Jonah than that. And they're like, we don't really want to kill him. You see that in their prayer. But God, this is interesting, he would not, he would not allow them to make it back. For you men who have ever been out on the open ocean, maybe you ladies as well, you know what it's like to be caught up in a storm like this and to have the wind blowing the contrary direction. I was reminded of this yesterday in God's providence. My family and I went to the beach, and for some reason, the wind was blowing like 30 miles per hour, and it was the windiest day I'd ever been. And I had decided, due to the kindness of this young man who just read the scriptures for us a few minutes ago to learn how to paddleboard on the windiest day of the year. (laughs) I saw everybody smiling on the shore like as I was bringing the board out. Joel, I think you did that to me just to embarrass me. He tried, I tried. I think I could have got the idea. But the, the fascinating thing was I couldn't really stand up. He couldn't really, I kept falling off. I mean, the, it was white capping, okay? This isn't just the normal Naples beach. This was crazy stuff. And uh, 
the, the, the wind is just taking us like a mile down the shore. And it's just, we're just moving. And so at some point I'm thinking, like, I need to get back to my family. <laughs> like, I know they're here too. So I start trying to paddle back. <laughs> it was useless. I mean, I was, I was giving it everything I've got. And I mean, I, I don't think I'm too far out of shape. But I, but I could not make any progress. So I was like, all right, I'm just going to take the paddleboard onto the land and carry it back. It's like a parachute. It's like a 50-pound parachute. Like you're trying to carry it against the wind, like all the way back. Poor Joel, he was struggling too. Like we couldn't figure out the right way to get this thing back. It was like everything was against us. And I literally thought, you know what? We're going to have to leave these things here and come back another day. Or just ride this thing on down to the end, get a taxi to take us back up to our place, and then go back and get them. Look, when the wind's against you, there, there ain't no getting past it. And these men realized that God himself had put a wall there. It even says in the original language that they were trying to break through. They couldn't break through. They wanted to preserve his life. And here's the question that I want you to ask yourself. Why wouldn't God allow them to make it through if he's just going to do the same thing with a whale anyway? Why won't God allow the ship to turn around And make it back to land so he can get to Nineveh. If he's going to use a well in the next chapter in the Hebrew to do the same thing anyway. That's the question you have to ask yourself as you're reading this. It's because rebellion must be executed. The penalty for defiance is death. It is not a slap on the wrist. It is not just the unfortunate realization that you messed things up. The penalty for sin is death. This was what the prophets had prophesied in the Old Testament and made it crystal clear. Ezekiel says, the soul that sins, it shall surely die. For those of you who have grown up memorizing verses out of Romans Chapter 6, verse 23 was probably one on the forefront of your mind. The wages of sin is death. It becomes clear here that this is the penalty. And so it says in verse 15, Jonah will be destroyed for his sin. Notice, so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. At this point, every human effort has been thwarted, foiled, shattered, and Jonah must face the certainty of death at sea. You need to understand, from an Old Testament Hebrew mindset, to be thrown into sea meant to die. They were a land-dwelling people. There were no swim lessons in Palestine. It would be an idiom for death. So just like we would say someone faces the firing squad or someone sits in the electric chair, we're not thinking like, oh, maybe they'll get out of that. Here, to be thrown into the sea is certain death. And this is not only true of Jonah's defiance. It's true of our own as well. We deserve death. That's what a holy God requires of those who would rebel against Him. For those of you who are members of our church and you've been a part of some of our seminars over the recent weeks, do you see the connections between this text and what we've been teaching you in our class on how to share the gospel? Do you see how the text is clearly showing us that God Himself is in control of everything? He is a powerful God. He is the King of the universe. And He created us to rule and reign underneath His perfect reign. And yet the problem was with this great picture that we defied that and instead of letting Him rule, we decided to rule things for ourselves. Thereby introducing sin and death and chaos into this world. But we know That things didn't stay that way. Even though we're clearly told here that the penalty of sin is death, we will find out eventually that Jonah will be delivered despite what he deserved. 
And we know from reading further revelation in the New Testament that we ourselves, even though we deserve death, would be delivered despite what we deserved through Jesus Christ and His sacrifice. Even the Old Testament prophet Isaiah summed it up so nicely in chapter 53, verses 4-6, to where he says, Surely He, talking about the prophetic representative Jesus Himself, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed. For our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord, in light of that defiance, has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Don't be afraid of the penalty of sin as it is described in the Scriptures. We can't lessen it in any way. It is there. It is real. We're not doing the Gospel any favors by hiding that. But we also have not fully preached the Gospel until we recognize that Christ satisfied that. He's a holy God. He's a gracious God. And in His power and might, even though man may defy Him, He can figure out a way to turn rebels into the repentant. Notice verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord to make vows. Remember our foil? Here's where the foil reaches its ultimate climax. Don't think about the rest of the story. Think about where we are right now. Right now, we've got a defiant prophet supposedly drowning in the sea. And we've got pagan sailors who knew nothing of God moments prior to this, submitted to him and worshiping him. Through his sovereign power, God debilitates the defiant and delivers the undeserving. That's the way He works. This is what He does. He cannot be stopped. This is the point of the text. This is the key to understanding the entire book of Jonah. Yes, we should imply some lessons like, no, don't say no to God. You shouldn't do that. That's bad. Yeah, I get that. But there's something bigger than that. It is that this God who created everything cannot be stopped. He will do as He pleases. Recognize that. And once you understand that, then you won't defy Him anymore. We need to see His power before we can apply our own obedience. Jonah may defy, but God will dominate. This is why Paul says in Romans 9, it's always been His prerogative to save No matter what, he can show his mercy however he wants. He told Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. What a mercy of God to save these sailors. So Justin, how do you know they're saved? Well, it says that they feared Worship, all same word. They fear they worship the Lord exceedingly. They didn't just do it generically to the gods. They've been re- using that phrase. Remember, they've been using little g all the way through this thing. And now they use the covenant name of God. And not only are they willing to make sacrifice to Him, but it says that they vow a vow to Him. That they are willing to pledge their allegiance to Him. To use a modern idiom. They are willing to follow Him. To submit to Him. To obey Him. And I know that you want to know more about Jonah. I think we can figure out where the story goes. But can I point out something that you can't see in the English text? And I don't like to do this very often. But in the Hebrew, chapter 1 ends here. We want to read verse 16. We want to bail Jonah out. Right now, the text ends here. Why does it end here? What is God trying to teach us? What are the big takeaways from this? I think the lesson can be best summed up 
through the words of the African-American civil rights leader. He had written several books and poems, but there was one particular one entitled God's Trombones. And he begins with this poem that he thought summarized the preaching that he had heard in his upbringing. And these are the words. Young man, young man, your arms are too short to box with God. Whose arms are too short? It's not God's. It's ours. There is no need to resist Him. It is useless to defy Him. You can box with God all you want, but you will not get in a punch. He wins in the end. This applies not only to the prodigal son, it applies to the prodigal prophet. It not only applies to the prodigal prophet, but it applies to all of those who would follow in his footsteps. So, dear sinner, visitor, the person that's here that doesn't know whether or not they've responded to this Lord. I'm not going to say many things that I believe that God wants you to do. You can read the Bible for yourself for that. But let me tell you one thing that I am crystal clear on this morning. That I know that God wants for you before you leave this place. That is, that you would repent of your defiance and rely on Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. I say that with all the authority of the Scriptures behind me. And to defy that is to defy God Himself. You cannot box with God, friend. You will not outwit Him. One day, and I say this kindly, you will bend the knee in submission to Him. The question is whether you do it now in this life or in the one to come. Philippians chapter 2, verse 11 warns us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Repent in this life and you reap the benefit of His reward for you for eternity to come. But if you're forced to submit in the life to come, you will forever suffer the wrath for your rebellion. This isn't only for the the prodigal sinner. This is for the prodigal saint. For the one who continues to persist in some way, maybe even on account of the fact, okay, Jesus Christ has already died my death, and therefore it's not that big a deal how I live. (laughs) Brother or sister, if that's your attitude, I would question whether or not you're even a believer in the first place. But I do know from personal experience that it is possible to live in some type of defiance against God for something that He desires of you. I'm not going to threaten you. I'm not going to say that God's going to throw you out on the ocean and swallow you by fish. All I'm going to point out is that your arms are too short to box with God. He will get His way. And what I rejoice in is that in the book of Romans, it says that it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. He doesn't always have to send thunderbolts and lightning. Like he, he just wants you to respond in repentance to whatever it is He's calling you to do now. But Hebrews warns us that those whom He loves, He also chastens. So, if you can't beat Him, why not join Him? Why resist Him? Whatever it is that He's been working on in your heart for these last months, weeks, maybe years. Why defy God like that? He will get His way in the end. We may defy, but God will dominate. Let's pray in response to that. I pray that we would walk away from this place today with a practical awareness of your unstoppable power. I've delivered the word, it is your word, and now I pray that it will do its work. But I don't know everyone's spiritual state here, but it is 
really possible and probable that there are some who need to trust in you today. I pray they do that now. I pray that they would speak to one of us church members if they have a question about that before they even leave. And Lord, knowing the hearts of your people, it's impossible. I don't know, but you do. And if there's any way in which we're defying you, resisting you, I just pray that we'd humble ourselves and realize Lord, that your way's best and that you will get your way in the end. It is useless to defy you. So may we submit to you in a new way, in a fresh way, and be invigorated to serve you in the ways that you've called us to this week. Do this for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.